Wonder Things Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Peter Arulian. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Lauren Harris. And you've tuned into a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is our opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed. We can pick the brains of one of the pantheon of literary alchemists. Nicely said, exactly. I've actually heard a a co-host recommend strip mining from their skull, which was a little grim, but, you know, if the metaphor fits, wear it. Well, I mean, you know, if we're lucky enough, maybe some some wisdom will come bursting forth from the creator's forehead, fully formed as Athena from the forehead of Zeus. You are just rocking the classic Greek thing, aren't you? We were you talking about. Started, I yes, help it. We were just talking about Greek islands before we got started. Now she's I was there. A classics major, dude. What do you want? <laughs> I have flipped a switch, and now she can't stop. Lauren Harris, it's a delight to have you back as my co-host, man. Thank you so much. Why, thank you, Dave. It is a pleasure to be back, as always. Indeed, indeed. And you sit so lovely in that chair. Ma'am, just just sit back and relax. I, I have a tale to weave for you. May I? Shall we invoke the muses? I, 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 think, I think that might be dangerous. I think I've got enough material here. If the muses get involved, we'll be here all night. Well, let's not. Just tell me the story. All right. Here, here we go. Here we go. Let me, let me regale you with the yarn of our guest host. Uh, he grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and from an early, early age, he was the servant of two masters, music and story. His entire family had a strong musical vibe working. As he was being tucked in at night, it was bedtime songs and stories that lulled him off to the land of Nod. And he'd often sit with his sister and make up these vast, elaborate stories for her completely off the cuff. Now, growing up with good music, like Manaheim Steamroller, or a good story, either one of these would send him into a kind of a fugue state, a mental hollow deck, if you will, where he'd explore all the permutations of notes and chords or character arcs and plot twists. Now, interestingly enough, there's a rumor that Nikola Tesla did the same thing. But while Nikola was working wonders with electricity, our guest host was exploring stories with music and words. He was christened into the world of geekdom with Terry Brooks's Sword of Shannara. He wrote a mystery play with a friend in the sixth grade, a serious drama that their advisor urged them to turn into a melodrama. (laughs) And at sixth grade, that's probably good advice. Now, while he claims that this inaugural theatric masterpiece was filmed, I can attest that YouTube has yet to be graced with its thespionic splendor. Uh, No doubt a source of great relief for our guest host. Now, having been bitten by the genre bug, he spent his high school years reading the usual canon of fantasy and sci-fi novels. Now, he also acquired a polyhedral addiction. Dude was playing D&D, rolling dice like a mad fiend. And when he was 14, 
the World of Greyhawk supplement was released, a moment many of us can relate to. He would lovingly lay out that huge, gorgeous map and wonder about all the strange places and the things to be found there. Then, because he was the dungeon master, what a shock, right? He'd proceed to populate them himself. And that love of maps, by the way, would persist into his adult life, as we'll see later. Now, this may all sound like the conventional geek narrative, but you gotta understand that while all this is going on, He's doing varsity sports. He's serving on committees in student government and singing in the school's a cappella choir. And, sin of sins, he's dating. I know, right? I mean, by what possible standard does this guy claim any nerd credibility? But it's okay. I know, right? I mean, who who dated in high school when they were a nerd? It's all right. Not me. (laughs) It all comes around. See, nerd embarrassment is like karma. It will manifest eventually. In this case, the girl he was dating was the best friend of the woman he would ultimately marry. A fact that I'm sure continues to be a fascinating aspect of personal history for both of them. Now, I'm told, of course, his wife has a great sense of humor, which goes a long way towards explaining why our guest host is still alive. So he graduates high school and in 1987 enrolls in the University of Utah, pursuing a degree in English. He's also broadened his literary horizons and chances upon Stephen King's Night Shift. Now, that collection of short fiction is an epiphany for him, and it invigorates his writerly desires. In 1991, while performing in a rock band that was actually recording and distributing their tunes, uh, he completed his honors thesis, a fictional work titled Skinwalker based on the Navajo legend. Now, while it will come as no surprise that it was very Stephen King-esque, given his influences, it was a strong enough work to earn him an honors Bachelor of Arts degree in English. Oh, and he was finally dating the right girl. (laughs) Good on you, bud. (laughs) In fact, two years after graduation, they would get married and depart the dry, arid wastes of Utah for someplace a bit more humid and with a much more vibrant music scene. Seattle, Washington was their new home, and our guest host began serious vocal study with David Kyle. And the next four years were marked by an intensive study of music. But he was also spending more and more time writing as well. Now, this is no surprise, actually, because he was also working as an editor and as a journalist penning a column for Progression Magazine, where he got the opportunity to interview some of the great vocal performers in popular music. Now, apparently, interviewing awesome people is a habit that's hard to break. Not that I'd know anything about that, but our guest host has recently made a habit of interviewing some of the icons of genre fiction, including Patrick Rothfuss and George R.R. Martin. Now, these interviews, by the way, are available on YouTube. You can go ahead and search for them, but I'll also toss a couple links to you in the show notes as well. In 2002, he started working for Microsoft, eventually finding his way to the Xbox division, where he works to this day as a marketing and product manager. Okay, 
Geek cred reestablished. That's just badass. Now, during this time, he's also pursuing his music, receiving Best Vocalist awards, and seeing his songs climb all the way to number two on mp3.com. Then, in 2006, he sells his first story. A tale called Lilith for the Hags, Sirens, and Other Bad Girls of Fantasy Anthology released by Daw Books, followed by another tale for the Cosmic Cocktails Anthology titled God Uses a Dish Rag, also by Daw. Then in 2008, his story Beats of Seven appeared in Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show Anthology. But wait a minute. I missed something. I missed something in the chronology. Guys, we need to we need to wind the clock back to 2001 when our guest host wrote a novel. Now, he's actually written four so far, spanning horror, thriller, and fantasy vibes. He's very eclectic that way. But this one was special. It was an epic fantasy called The Ledge of Restoration. Doesn't fall trippingly off the tongue, but that's okay. Bear with me, it gets better. Now, he had an agent at the time, uh, one who was noted uh, in the sci-fi and fantasy genres. And as you do, our guest host sent the manuscript to him. Now, the agent urged him to shelve the book and pursue some of the thriller suspense novels our guest host had been noodling. Now, this was strange, and it took a while, but it became clear the agent was looking to expand his network in other genres and not really focusing on our guest host's current work. Now, they part company eventually, and our guest host began pursuing other agents. One agent requested his fantasy novel, and a few weeks later offered to represent him. And a few weeks after that, Tor made him an offer for the first three books in the series. Friends, never underestimate the power of a good agent. Now, a fair bit of polish and editing and revision, and the book was ready. It was retitled The Unremembered, book one of the Vault of Heaven series. See, that falls much more trippingly off the tongue. Uh, And it released in 2012 to rave reviews and endorsements from Terry Brooks, Piers Anthony, and Ed Greenwood. Not content to just release a book, however, our guest host went on to release supplemental stories set in the world of the Vault of Heaven, developed an interactive map for the Vault of Heaven website. See, I told you this guy's got a fixation with maps. And even produced a video short story titled Cradle of the Scar. Now, there's even talk of a soundtrack CD in production of music for and inspired by the Vault of Heaven series. Yes, our guest host is serving two masters, but he's weaving them together in one marvelous literary adventure. The second book in the series, Trial of Intentions, released just one week ago. He loves mountains, astronomy, and beyond all else, his family. He gets up at 3.30 in the morning to do his writing, and if he could visit one fantasy world, it would be Stephen King's Dark Tower. <laughs> Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, Peter Orulian. Peter, holy crap, your book just released. I know you're setting up for a book tour. Your life must be insane right now. Thank you so much for making the time and 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 coming onto the round table. We appreciate it. Oh, I'm uh, pleased to be here and uh you completely overwhelm me. You should be a P- you should be a PI. That, I mean, it's, it's fantastic and just a little bit creepy. There you go. Well, we'll need to ask he you. He is to... a PI. He is a literary PI. That's right. Oh my <laughs> gosh! That, I 
I didn't even know all that about myself. <laughs> well, we'll need to ask- Robinson, LPI. That, LPI, there you go. We'll need to ask you to leave your house, Peter, so we can clear out all the bugs. The cleaning team can go in. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> did, I, did I get anything wrong? Were there any egregious errors or anything that I missed or overlooked? No. Wow. Awesome. No, Fabulous. Thorough. <laughs> really. Well, see, and the whole idea behind those things is is I want to get all that information out of the way so we can get to the good stuff. So so let's dive into this. Let's let's get into our twenty minutes with Peter Orulian. And I'm gonna go ahead and set the clock. We're going to ignore it. I can almost guarantee you. But you know, we gotta try. Um Peter, my first question for you is 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 this. Um, back in a 2011 interview with SFF World, uh, you had said that I like best the moment of creation, whether new words, new song, or anything else. There are a few things that are satisfying to me. And that's interesting to me because I'm really kind of curious to know, and I'm going to wrap this question in a much broader question, and that is why do you write I mean, the, the act, that moment of creation, I get that. Trust me. I think everybody gets that. But I'm curious what it is about that moment that, that drives you to the keyboard at 3.30 in the morning to be working on an epic fantasy novel. Why, why are you doing this? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I had to get up at 4.30 uh, to, be some, to be at work at 4.30 a.m. for a about two years, and I know, <laughs> I not uh, no no respect. Yeah, it's uh that's early. I I um I think if I ever I'm able to do this full time, I'll still get up early. Maybe not quite that early. <laughs> um, but it you know your question's an interesting one. Um, and I I thought about it a little bit. There's something kind of ineffable, uh, you know, which is ironic for a writer to have to say about. <laughs> The, the, that moment where things kind of lock together and it does, it's not always while you're at the keyboard. I mean, a lot of writers do their best writing while they're showering and sure. <laughs> you know, it, it just happens that um, the pieces fall into place and there's something sublime about that. You know, that the act of creation is, is beautiful and miraculous and that sounds very maudlin, but it's no less true. And I liken it, it in my musical life where I'm working, I use, I work best as a musician when I'm collaborating with others. And when, you know, I'm working with the composition and modifying sections and introducing new sections and then putting vocals over the top of it. When I, when I find the right melody and the right lyrics to marry to that melody to evince the emotion that the music is, you know, providing me, uh, that moment, I, while I absolutely adore live performance, um, in fact, if someone held a gun to my head and said, you must choose, but you can be successful at either, I would choose to be a working musician over a writer, uh, which is probably, you know, uh, <laughs> crazy to hear, for, you know, because I, um, I'm on a writing podcast after all. But there's, you know, I've even heard Stephen King say this, you know, that there's something so immediate uh, about being on stage and, and performing. And I've not done as much of that in my life as I would like, but I have to tell you, um, it'll be hard to top singing to 9,000 screaming Germans who know every <laughs> single word I've sang. Yeah. Uh, and singing it with me in, in complete unison and with all of the energy of their soul. Uh, I mean, that's, it's just a moment in time. And then musicians who get to recreate that on tour. And so, 
and so as great as that is, though, back to my point, that moment when I, I first lock in and I know that the lyrics and the, and the melodies that I've written to a composition are are perfect, they're the right thing. There's a satisfaction that grows out of that, that like someone should measure the chemistry in my body because it's, <laughs> it's like orgasm, but better. You yeah, know, it lasts um, it, longer. <laughs> it lasts longer. You know, you walk away from that and you have that it sustains. You have that with you. You you've done this thing that you've created and it continues to exist. Um, and it just gets better than when you can share it. And it's not different with fiction. You know, when you when you really land the right words that communicate the story to a reader. And this is like this is a craft thing, too. Right. One of the things you learn uh, or hopefully learn in in workshops and such is that. When you're doing critique, you're really not critiquing, certainly not critiquing the writer, uh, the person, and you're not really even critiquing the story necessarily. Very often what you're doing is critiquing the instrument that is the manuscript. Um, and it may just be that it's been imperfectly put down on the page. It may be completely perfectly formed in the writer's mind. They just don't, haven't yet committed it to paper or, you know, a screen in the right way. But when That's they have interesting. That's intriguing. So you're so you're you're literally breaking apart the story, the manuscript, and the creator into three separate levels of of engagement. Well, they have to be. Sure, sure. Yeah. No, um, I agree. That's intriguing. So so that 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 last mile, which is the manuscript, the thing that goes out into the world and is consumed by a reader, when when those words are right and they are, you know, as perfectly conveying the story. Uh, that is in the writer's mind. That's the, that's the analog to you know, the situation I was just describing. Sure. And so though they're they're part and parcel of one another for me, and there's just not very many things that are more satisfying. And they they really kind of go. This is going to get kind of metaphysical, but they just really kind of go inside and they live there and they grow and they. I think they make the person bigger and better. The act of creation enriches the person, right? And I think that. It's why if if you're doing this for the money or if you're doing it for fame or any other reason, a person's motivation is their own. But I have to say, it's usually evident to me when the writer is really writing for the sake story for the sake of the story, and um, I think that th those stories are the ones that land with this this feeling that. Um, I don't always get this right either, but when I do, I know it, right? And and I can walk away and know that even if that never publishes, you know, that that, that moment of creation, it was mine. And um, I can kind of always hold on to that. And all of this sounds like as I hear myself talk kind of nanny-pandy. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is in the world of people who spend their time in the ephemeral, this is what we have. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, Maybe Pamby or not, I mean, we, we all wrestle with this. I'm sorry. I, I don't care how practical and how business-oriented you are. Th this is an act of creation. You know, Lauren has felt it. I have felt it. You have felt it. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Peter Arulian after this brief promotional break. The most powerful men in the world. The horrors created by mad science tentacled monstrosities from beyond the veil the elder gods themselves none of these evils can keep a cult consulting detective Esho St. Clair from the case whether his clients come from the high rises of Manhattan or the depths of the undercity Esho won't stop 
until a case is solved. From the mind of Scott Roche comes The Casebook of Esho St. Clair, featuring two complete tales of the fearless detective and his stalwart companions as they face off against terrors beyond the understanding of normal men. Find out more at www.scottroche.com or look for The Casebook of Esho St. Clair at your favorite online booksellers. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Peter Orulian. My question is, when you were writing that first novel, I mean, was it, you didn't, I mean, a writer never gets 9,000 screaming Germans chanting back their work at them. (laughs) That's that J.K. Rowling. Well, yeah, okay, there is that, there is that. (laughs) Or, or, you know, unless you get a movie. Performance writing. (laughs) It's a a thing. Make it happen. No longer a solitary sport. Yeah, you write on stage and people like, you as you do it. That would be awesome. I can't That's think kind of, of what this podcast is. Yeah, there you go. There you go. But but you know, before before you had any success, before you sold that first story, you were writing this novel. Was it your work, your experience on stage prior to that that you were equating to that experience? Because I, I can't I can't fathom someone sitting down to write what became an epic fantasy novel in every sense of the word. Uh, uh, on 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 the possibility of maybe someday having that connection, creating something and having people connect to it. Yeah, I mean, related to this, your your first question and my first response is is something I I've said other times as well, which is um, there are moments in a story, and it, it doesn't happen on every page or in every scene or chapter. Um, I, I don't believe for either the writer or the reader, but there are moments of um, uh, real impact in in any story. Um, the, the moments that are these these might be big battles. I mean, I, I won't issue that as a possibility, but for me, usually they're quieter moments where the the emotion of it is is so intense, and it, and that could be because it's heartbreaking. It could be because there's you know some things. There's elation going on, but the the moment that that um, you're experiencing is so impactful and and important, right? <laughs> it, it, and it could be important because you brought a certain set of um, circumstances or baggage to it as a reader that helps you understand it in your own unique way um, more powerfully than another reader will that very scene. Same thing for the writer. You know, you writers will cry and laugh at things they write in places that you know seem odd to readers who don't experience them the same way. And those moments, um, I, I heard, I think it was Dustin Hoffman gave an acceptance speech once for an Oscar he won, um, where he was he was also quoting uh, a composer. who I, I'm cribbing this and probably slaughtering it, but basically he talked <laughs> about this idea of moments um, in, in, the, in the creation and the, and the composition and the performance of music. And Dustin was saying the same thing for an actor. There are these moments and it's not every, it's not every line you deliver or every scene you're in, but, um, they, they're these standouts and they're these, you know, they're not just climaxes. Uh, I know there's a, there's a scene in my first book that's a very quiet scene with this character who's a badass and, but he, he takes care of orphans 
And he has this has the audacity to decide that he's going to rewrite something called the Charter, which is basically the principles by which mankind should live. Right? It's, just, <laughs> it's this huge thing. And, and the God set this forth for the world, but he thinks the world has lost its way. And so he's going to rewrite this. He's later going to have to figure out how he can imbue it with any power. But just the thought that he could do this at all. But he's doing this in the middle of a waste in a small house where he's taking care of orphans. And one of the little girls who's got misshapen lips, and that's why he's taking care of her, because anywhere else she'd have either been reviled or abused. She comes and sits in his lap, and they share this very quiet, special moment as he has this ginormous thought for the entire universe, right? And this moment for, is what I read when I went on my first book tour. And, you know, I can imagine some people thinking, well, why didn't he read me a cool sword scene where someone's getting sliced open? <laughs> um, those can be cool, too. For me, though, there was so much more power in this in this scene I read. And I, uh, this is a long-winded answer, too. I write for those moments. Every morning <laughs> isn't magic. Um, every morning is not, yay, this was like the best thing I wrote. Um, but those islands of time when I get to write those scenes, you know, for Stephen King, the analogy would be in Shining when he wrote the, the scene with room 237. You knew that room, that scene was coming up for the whole book. And he dreaded it, and but also was exhilarated by it. And these these moments, you know, I, I live for these. And um, getting up at three thirty is, you know, a chore. But um, I love I love that act, and I love those moments so much that I, I I would do it if they didn't pay me. As long as you got those moments, dude, yeah, we can we can I, totally relate. Totally I relate. Mm-hmm. It's a drug. I hear myself talking, and it sounds so modern well it, it, anyway it's i mean i'm sorry there's you know people look at books and they say it's a tangible thing there's there's words in a sentence in a paragraph it creates a story everybody looks at that and says that's a very tangible definable measurable thing but the process that brought that measurable thing into the world is not measurable which is why there are so many damn books on the subject of writing and how to write and different things because we're all looking for the, we're all unique and we all get to those points in different ways. And, and so, no, dude, you're, you're preaching to the choir. Lauren, am I right? He's right. <laughs> awesome. What do you got for, what do you got for Peter, Lauren? One of the questions I have actually just something that I, I think is uh, interesting and may, may interest some of the listeners is uh, what kind of connection have you found, if any, between your time as a dungeon master and your time as a writer, is there any kind of um, connection there for you? Well, you know, I, I haven't played as much recently, and I hear them called Game Masters more than Dungeon Masters, which I think is a shame because Dungeon Master sounds way more menacing. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, I did a lot of work in creating storylines, like bona fide storylines. And, you know, the the challenge I had as a young DM was, you know, my the characters weren't always following the storyline the way I damn well wanted them to follow it. <laughs> Never. Um, good, good training for a writer, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, but I, you know, I would, I was pretty thoughtful about um, the encounters, you know, that there weren't really very many random encounters, like when mm-hmm. they met a monster or they met a character in a town or whatever, I had thought through why they were meeting those people. And if there was loot to be had, I usually there was something about that loot that needed to factor later. Um, you know, it was, it's the corollary of the smoking or the gun on the mantelpiece. Uh-huh. It, it wasn't like, Hey, if there was a ring in the, the cash that you just got from that band of cobalt, you just killed, 
it wasn't random. You know, it belonged to someone's wife, and there's it's you might not, not want to sell it. Yeah. So anyway, and there's a story hook. It's a guaranteed story hook. Any any special treasure that's going to be an adventure somewhere down the road. Yeah, yeah. And so my, so my my players came to to recognize that not to dismiss anything as insignificant. Well, and I'm I'm intrigued. Uh, uh, to, to, to turn the subject along those lines, I mean, one of the things about gaming is that there are so many tropes, uh, uh, especially in D&D. I mean, role-playing games, by their very nature, uh, are built around the tropes of either a genre or sometimes a specific story arc. And you've spoken at length uh, many times, Peter, on, on the the subverting the trope is the new trope uh, yeah. uh, type of vibe that you see in a lot of stories. Um, but you also mentioned um, it was in a, a 2011 interview with Blake uh, Charlton about um, there are certain things that if a writer does it, you're in. You you will totally be on it uh, or, or at least cut them some slack and, and give them a few more chapters. And I'm really curious to know what is it that flips those triggers for you where you say, oh, yeah, that, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm down with this. This story's good for me. Can you can you quantify those a little bit? Yeah, they're pretty, a couple of them that are pretty concrete. If a, if a writer's doing, weaving music into the story somehow, <laughs> I want to, I want to see how they're treating it. Um, because I, I'm, if I'm snobbish about anything, it's music. And so just because I know so much about it. And so I, I really want to, to see how the writer is going to deal with it, whether it's integral for, to a, a, the magic or if it's just, um, you know, tavern singers, you know, performing for the supper. I, I, if it's, if it seems like it's important to the world and the story, then I'm going to go along, you know, for more pages. The other thing that I absolutely adore in fiction is a protagonist set of protagonists who are at that age, you know, maybe between nine and 12, where they're old enough to be able to do stuff. You know, they can get out and do real stuff. They're smart. They're capable. But they're also young enough still to believe, you know, and by that, I I think about, you know, stories like Stephen King's It, where this group of kids, like they they take it upon themselves to to battle the great evil. And, you know, one of the kids decides that his asthma inhaler is acid and turns it into a weapon. Um, and there are a lot of books that take that age range as its protagonist. And um, I adore it. I just, you know, it's a reason. So it's the I innocence it. of, of that age maybe that captivates you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there um, there's, there's something about that. And I have a daughter who's in that age right now and they're, they're smart. They're just really smart and they can, they're, also again very capable you can see that the adult they're going to be but they still <laughs> they still have this this ability to believe and um i just adore that i for the same reason i adored um a dan simmons summer of night which is still mm. probably a top five book for me God, i yes. adored um robert mccammon's boy's life uh for yeah. the same reason um absolutely gorgeous books and you read you read these characters and you they're the only books I typically go back and reread. I want to live in with those characters in those worlds at the, that time. That's you mm -hmm. know that's how passionate I get about it. How do you how do you capture that then in in your writing? How how what what is it? You know, just trying to pull this into a, a how could I create something that awesome, that honest, that that true 
is is there a is there a perspective? Is there a, a, a I'd hate to render it down to a trick or a technique, but is is there a way you think that that to to present that kind of authenticity and innocence effectively as a writer? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind with the writers I was just describing in the books they wrote, they were drawing on their own childhood, mm. um, and uh, which isn't to say that you couldn't write, you know, a fairly authentic child of that age set in any time period. I'm sure you could. You could do tons of research and and fill it with the right kinds of details to ring of that to ring true. Having said that, though, I. Something tells me instinctively that it would be impossible to do it with as much authority as Dan Simmons did when he wrote about the Midwest in the 1960s, because that's when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. He he walked down dirt roads. You know, he walked through dry fields with grasshoppers. Um, he rode a bike, you know, with fenders that banged and cards in the spokes. And he knows what that sounds like. And, and he knows the anticipation of meeting friends in a chicken coop. And, and having to make your own fun because there was nothing electronic back then. So, you know. But let, let me just jump in. Can we do that as, as speculative fiction writers in, in a world with, with magic and dragons and mercenaries? How does that work? Yeah. I mean, it's this thing where, well, I, I wouldn't be a good writer if I didn't make a Star Trek analogy. There you so, go. So here you go. So with Star Trek, you'll hear this argument all the time. Well, hey, how come all the aliens speak English? Well, okay, it's because we have to tell a story and we have, you know, 60 minutes to do it or however, you know, 40 minutes, whatever it was. So they speak English and they're bipedal, most of them, and they have the same emotions we do. I don't think it's imperative that something be so other that it's not relatable. In fact, if it were, we wouldn't read it because we couldn't relate to it. So I think bringing that back to your question with uh, as, as fiction writers who maybe didn't live in the 1960s in the Midwest, we could, we could, you know, saturate ourselves with, with film and with music and with autobiography and visit the place and do all these kinds of things to, um, kind of get that inside ourselves to write about it authentically. I would still, I would still be glad to debate that we might still not do it as well as Dan did, having like spent his, you know, he spent, those actual years of his life there where you or I would, you know, research it as thoroughly as we could. Well, but you'd write about Utah and, and I'd write about New Jersey, you know, you write about what you know. Well, so yes and no. I, I do believe that, that drawing on some of the authenticity of your own experience is what gives a lot of narrative its power. I don't think it's requisite that it only be those things. And I think th- things can, your writing can still be powerful. So I wouldn't tell people don't write about it if you didn't live it per se. And with a second world fantasy like I've written, I certainly haven't really lived there. Um, but I have been, you know, I have, there's a kid in, in the, in the story. Um, and there's a, a, a teen in the story who's going through a whole bunch of really hard stuff. Um, I've been a teen going through really hard stuff. And so that's the point I was trying to make where I think it's relatable because a lot of people who've grown have been teens and most of us experienced some real bad shit when we were in our teen years. Sure. And so, so it, it's not important for us to necessarily live in a second world, you know, where magic is real and maybe dragons and all that to know that if a kid is, being ostracized, how that feels. Um, and, and, and frankly, I think that I, I love fantasy that has cool dragons and big war scenes and stuff, but also helps me see that those characters go through some of the same 
shit that I did. That, <laughs> sure. You know, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, and, and it makes, I mean, those, those quiet, intimate moments with the girl on the guy's lap or whatever, those moments are what establish the stakes for those big fights and the huge dragons and the epic conflict. Otherwise, it's just the wide world of sports. You know, and I, and I know you're you're a sports guy, and I'm I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but without that that foundational intimacy and authenticity and caring, not only between the characters, but fostering that caring with your readers for these characters, then all the big fights in the world aren't going to make anybody care about it more. Right. Yeah, I mean, they touchstones to experience that allow people to really anchor to a story and have. You know, a sympathetic relationship with the characters. Yeah, that's exactly right. The the scene that I described, it's like he he's doing in the most modest setting, he's doing potentially the most world shattering thing, and the the you know this girl that he's basically caring for like a father that he's adopted. I, I I'm not explicit about it really on the page, but I'm I'm hopeful that when readers are reading that. The, the a subtext they're getting is it's precisely because he, it's necessary for him to live in this place and take care of these orphans that he has to do this thing. Because it shouldn't be true that a girl with mangled lips should have to live in this place in order to have a life. The world's gone wrong if that's true. Mm-hmm. So there's there's you know there's a couple things going on in that scene, and I don't spell it out, but I'm hoping that the readers read it and think, yeah, he's doing this because – the wor- the world's got got cast cast offs and someone has to stand up for them you know what i mean which qualifies him to rewrite the rules of the world by god right if that's not permission to do it what is right absolutely i couldn't agree more well look guys the 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 clock has has brandished the song of doom at me and is threatening to <laughs> hurl it in my face. I, I can only assume that means that, that we've overstayed uh, our welcome here in clock world. And I'm sorry for that because this has been a fascinating discussion. Peter Arulian, thank you so much, man. This has been outstanding. Yeah, thanks for having me. You guys are great. <laughs> Absolutely. Lauren, there, there was there was some rightly goodness being tossed out there. There was some, there was I, some, yeah, I really think so. yeah. I what, what's 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 sticking in your mind? What are you what are you taking away from this twenty minutes with Peter Arulian? Well, you know, the thing that I think uh, really struck me the most was that moment of creation mm-hmm. and and talking about uh, the the reason people create and that that relationship uh, with an audience that creates that synergistic back and forth between both creator and audience and it sort of feeds in, in yeah. itself yeah and how you know that that may not be as immediate with authors but we still have some of that feeling i think well and that's that's the intriguing thing when we were talking about that i was feeling the same way it's like you know you you hope that these moments that that are sending these endorphins through your brain it's like oh yes that's awesome you you really hope that 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 same rush can can be conveyed somehow uh, uh to to your readers yeah absolutely but boy writing it is is sure a rush holy crap <laughs> for for me it's it you know I'm, I'm I tend to think way too much but the but the the affirmation of not the separation because they're not they're a continuity but the the distinction of writer manuscript and story right mm-hmm. for for some reason that really kind of struck me and I I, th- I think ultimately what we're trying to do as writers is ensure that that conceptual story that we know is out there is as 
faithfully represented in that manuscript as possible. And that's our biggest challenge as, totally, as yeah. writers. Uh, uh, and I guess the challenge, of course, is how do you do that? And that's why we have 20 minutes with to get a little bit closer, figure out how that works. Awesome. Well, friends, here's the deal, as always, on the round table. Uh, uh, that 20 minutes was OK. Look. 30 minutes or so. Yeah, uh, that was fabulous. There was good stuff there. Now, here's the deal. You come back in seven days. We'll have Lauren and Peter back. We'll add to the mix a fabulous, courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer. They'll pitch a story idea, and we are going to brainstorm like we've never brainstormed before. It's going to be fabulous. <laughs> but that's seven days. That's a long time between now and seven days from now. So, Lauren, what, what should our listeners do between now and seven days from now to fill that time? You know, Dave, there, there are two things they could do. Okay. And uh, the the first one would be, you know, pick up a banjo and strum it. <laughs> the okay. second one, the second one is they they need to be writing. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Get your stories out in the world. Make the world bigger, deeper, and sweeter with your words. And I will tell you, as I always do, dear friends, you find what you're looking for. So if you set your sights on the wow, the oh yeah, you look for the good stuff, I promise you, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.